Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. This is The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. It smelled like really, really strong paint thinner, and then his eyes turned like bloodshot, and he started coughing, and I was like, yeah, we're leaving. So we hurry up and grabbed as much as we could, and we took off. Two weeks ago, a train carrying toxic chemicals through a small town in eastern Ohio derailed in a fiery crash. Flames and black smoke filled the sky. About half of the residents in East Palestine and others in surrounding areas were ordered to evacuate their homes while authorities issued a controlled release and burn of chemicals in the rail cars that were at risk of exploding. Now, officials have been monitoring air, soil, and water quality due to the hazardous chemical spill. And last week, nearly a week after the derailment, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine said residents could safely return home. The Environmental Protection Agency has released updates saying it, quote, has not detected any levels of concern in the community. So residents have slowly started to come back home. School reopened in East Palestine on Monday. But some residents have questioned just how safe it is to return. They spoke with WTAE Pittsburgh News. I worry because nobody really knows. I mean, this is unusual for this to happen here. And even though they say it's okay now, of course we're all concerned about it. We are. And some residents are reporting a chemical smell in their homes. Whenever I got back, it still smelled a little plasticky in the air. The second I walked into the house, the air was just heavy. It was thick. It was hard to breathe. I'm, I'm asthmatic, so I immediately hit my inhaler. I could, I could tell that it was hitting my chest. Mattress, uh, my couches, they just smell of the chemicals, my clothes. We're in the midst of washing everything right now, um, trying to get the chemical smell out. And so at this moment, it seems the only certainty is uncertainty. On Wednesday morning, I spoke with Matthew Cunningham Cook. He's a reporter with The Lever, a national reader-supported investigative journalism outlet. All right, what do we know about what caused the train to derail in East Palestine? The broader situation is there's 90% less people working on the rails than there were 70 years ago. You have an older workforce that is tired, it's uh, burnt out, and it's treated very poorly by the railroad industry. So that's, that's and, and we've seen this discussion since August. So, so, the, so Matthew, I want you to pause for a second there, because I, I don't want to miss the human connection. I'm not sure I, I thought that's where you were going to go. Like, we asked that kind of question, and I'm expecting, oh, there was a, you know, there was this kind of physical thing, or the, and you're, you went straight to human beings at the core of this. We can't talk about a lack of safety on the rails when if we're not listening to workers. And that was, you know, the the big thing here is that the rail unions have championed common sense safety improvements 
whether it's making sure that rail workers are not working exhausted, one, or two, uh, common sense technological improvements. So the braking technology uh, that these trains use comes from 1868. Uh, and uh, it's basically like a ricochet braking system. So the engine brakes and then the first car brakes and then the second car brakes and then the third car brakes and it's kind of like a locking system and so it's <laughs> and uh what these new modern electronically controlled pneumatic brakes uh would do is allow every car on the train to stop at the same time and these brakes are very common on amtrak trains uh, and they're required for trains that use nuclear waste hazards. And the rail unions have championed them. Uh, and the Obama administration tried to expand their use. Trump uh, rolled that back. Uh, Biden and Buttigieg have not at this point attempted to bring uh, back this expansion of these breaks. Uh, and every expert we talked to said that the scope of the disaster could have been significantly reduced or eliminated had these breaks been in place. We've got tired workers who, as yeah. you know, we've been covering here on The Takeaway, their battle for even a single day of sick leave. So we've got yeah. tired workers. We've got a smaller workforce, right? Fewer workers. And then you're telling me we are using 19th century technology for freight trains. Is, is it massively more expensive? to bring in these more, I mean, could we just get to the 20th century, but just more modern braking system? It's less than 1% of the cost that the railroads have spent on stock buybacks uh, over the last decade. It's about a billion dollars to widespread implement ECP brakes. And yeah, no, it's the cost is minimal compared to the massive gains in safety. And yeah, the issue with less workers is that this this 1868 technology is actually designed to have a, a much larger workforce. So when you have this kind of ricochet braking system, you need to make sure that the train cars uh, are are in order in terms of weight that the the heaviest car is is the closest to the engine and the lightest car is furthest away from the engine because when you have heavier train cars bumping into lighter train cars it creates what's called in-train forces which can trigger the derailments and the rail union activists who we spoke to also said that they believed that's that was a contributing factor here is that the train cars hadn't been put in proper order. And you're just going, when you have 900,000 less people working the rails than you did 70 years ago, that's basically a problem that you're going to have to live with. And that's why these rail unions have been so aggressive in, in championing this revolutionary new technology. Now, yeah. you did say that these brakes are required when carrying nuclear materials. But in this case, this was a train carrying high hazard materials? Is that right? Talk to me about sort of where that classification is and what kinds of materials were on this train. Yeah, I mean, so that's part of the problem is that this wasn't even classified as a high hazard train because they weren't carrying a sufficient amount of hazardous materials to meet that designation. The main 
dangerous material that they were carrying was vinyl chloride, a critical component of creating vinyl. And it's highly flammable, it's highly combustible, and it's highly toxic. And when it burns, it can turn into even more toxic things like hydrogen chloride. The railroad industry, just like we see in other industries, you know, like we saw with the 2008 financial crisis, has really taken advantage of massive levels of government underfunding of federal regulators like the Federal Railroad Administration or the Surface Transportation Board. And also, frankly, has taken advantage of a lack of vision uh, of the people leading these departments, you know, so people like Pete Buttigieg, who really had very limited experience in this industry before rising to this position, really, you know, it took him 10 days to comment on this. And we haven't heard kind of the type of, you know, technical policy wonk type of stuff that we would have hope to expect from somebody uh, uh, like Pete when he took this, when we're dealing with a freight rail system that frankly is seeing massive deteriorations in service quality, you know, that's a problem. Even if you kind of exclude the safety issues, railroads are getting far slower than ever before. They're being far more aggressive with bullying their clients than ever before in terms of setting rates uh, that don't make sense. Uh, and they're getting slower and slower at delivering things. And really, you, in my view, you can't look at the inflation that we saw in 2022 if you don't kind of consider the ways in which we're not properly regulating railroads on the one hand and the way that uh, railroads are treating their workers on the other hand. Quick break, and we're right back with more on the continuing disaster of the Ohio train derailment right after this. The archives at Carnegie Hall hold treasures from our cultural history. In the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk, we use these items as touchstones to explore how the past shaped the world we live in today. I'm your host, Jessica Vosk, and I'll be joined by historians, performers, cultural critics, and others to look back at the iconic venue's legendary and sometimes quirky history. If This Hall Could Talk, from Carnegie Hall and distributed by WQXR. Listen wherever you get podcasts. This is a takeaway, and we're talking with Matthew Cunningham Cook, a reporter with The Lever, a national reader-supported investigative journalism outlet. All right, Matthew, you said so many connections there. We got to walk back through some of those. So walk me through the connection between um, what's going on at the federal level, and 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 you're you're calling out um, the Secretary of T Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, here, um, suggesting that maybe there isn't the kind of policy wonkiness, or I'm assuming you're talking about here really like the technical capacities. What would you like to see from a federal Secretary of Transportation in a moment like this? I mean, Pete's deputy, Polly Trottenberg, was the commissioner of the, the New York City Department of Transportation. She was a high-ranking official during the Obama administration. She really understands these issues on an instinctual level. And so that, I think, is kind of the, the key thing, is we need somebody like her leading the department who really has deep understanding of these issues. Now, at the state level, there's really significant issues as well. So at this press conference yesterday, Governor DeWine said, you know, I have no power as a governor, one, which is just totally untrue. 
And two, he was like, Congress needs to examine this HH, this high hazard frequency train designation, which is correct. They do. But Mike DeWine was in Congress for 20 years <laughs> while all this was happening <laughs> in the Senate for 12 of those. Uh, it, it, I mean, this was a while ago, but, you know, he left uh, the Senate in 2006. Uh, but, you know, it's Ohio has tons of railroads. And this is the first time that we've heard the governor of Ohio speak out about train safety in the aftermath of a huge disaster. And, that, and that's a problem, too. Uh, I think really what we need is, is, yeah, this solid technical expertise combined with really understanding that if there's anybody who understands what it takes to make these rails safe, it's the workers doing it. And we really need to start listening more to the rail workers when they say, we need these breaks, we need sick leave, <laughs> we, we need compensation so we can uh, recruit newer people onto the rails. And we need uh, a holistic system for analyzing how brittle our supply chains are. So, you know, I mean, I've I've said in some of our other media appearances, we were allowed to talk about supply chains from March to May 2020. Uh, and then it seems like it got totally pushed to the side uh, again. And it's the fact is, is that, you know, in a globalized economy, where at the same time, we've been uh, treating supply chain workers very poorly uh, for the last 40 years, basically, you know, something's got to get. Uh, and and we need to we we really need to start having a national strategy for ensuring that we have resilient, redundant supply chains, and that's both uh, ensuring that we have the most modern technology, one and two that there's more workers doing this work and that there's real redundancy here to ensure that when people retire, when people get sick, when there's a disaster that we have a resilient supply chain system so that Americans can get their goods delivered to them at, at prices that are fair and affordable. One last question as we go. Can you hop off the rails for a second and, and go into the community for me a bit? Talk to me about um, what what you know or, or don't know right now about what folks are experiencing in the community. I live in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and um, just over a year ago, um, there was a fertilizer plant fire here that released, um, you know, toxic chemicals, reduced air quality, shut schools, displaced people, all of that. And so I've, I've really been um, feeling this and what these communities are undoubtedly um, going through. And a, a year later, you know, there are many in our community, right? Media moves on, but many in our community still dealing with the effects of the Weaver fertilizer um, fire. Talk to me about what's happening in the communities impacted. Yeah, I mean, you know, at this press conference yesterday that I attended, you know, there were, I mean, I got, uh, I asked, I was able to ask one critical question, and I got several emails and Twitter direct messages about it being like, from people in the community and the surrounding area being like, thank you for asking questions, <laughs> because uh, it seems like nobody is asking the critical questions of the administration here in Ohio about whether or not this is actually safe. So what we know is that there's a huge plume of chemicals flowing down the Ohio River right now. There's tons of municipal water systems, including the city of Cincinnati, that use the Ohio River. Uh, and we're just, you know, basically doing it live, figuring out whether or not things are safe. Uh, 
as this disaster unfolds. Uh, and I think there's a lot of fear. Uh, there's a lot of anxiety. And I think that's correct. You know, I mean, the, you know, the, the state and federal government really fell down on the job in Flint. They fell down on the job uh, uh, on 9-11. You know, I think we should, I think the press should really treat all claims made by any governmental official at this point with extreme skepticism. And that's what we're, that's what we're working to do here, here at the lever. and, And we're planning on covering this issue very closely in the coming weeks. Matthew Cunningham Cook, a reporter with The Lever, which is a national reader-supported investigative journalism outlet. Matthew, I hope that you will also return here to The Takeaway to continue to be in conversation with us about this continuing story. Thanks so much for having me on, Melissa. I appreciate it.